welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge. I'm your host, Edward Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jay Shabat, to discuss Air France KLM's Move On SAS and United's third 100-plus airplane order in two years. Enjoy. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this week? I'm good, Ned. It was great to see you in New York last week at our SCIFT annual meeting. That's forum. right. We had the Skiff Global Forum and, and the whole team decamped to New York when it was a it was a good roster. Lots of speakers. Uh, you know, last week, listeners, you you enjoyed David Nealman's uh, talk on stage at the forum. So it was it was a good time. It was a good time. And we uh, yeah, I got I, I'm sure it's the same for you as well, Ned, but I got to meet some of our readers and listeners as well. So for uh, some of you out there who uh, got to meet us, that was that was great. Thanks for coming. And uh, don't forget, we've got our aviation forum coming up on uh, November first. So that, hope to see more of you there. That's right, and we'll uh, we'll drop a link to to the aviation forum in the uh, podcast info. But let's let's move on to the news. It's been it's, we're recording this on Wednesday, October fourth, and, and we've already had a news packed week. Uh, top of mind, though, for many people is the announcement that. Air France KLM will take a nearly 20% stake in SAS, and as part of that, SAS will switch alliances to SkyTeam from Star. Jay, what are your thoughts? Consolidation is uh, on the move in Europe, for sure. Absolutely. We've already got, uh, yeah, we've got um, the, don't forget the IAG Air Europa deal, which is uh, subject to regulatory approval. We'll see where that goes. Yep. And then we've got uh, Lufthansa buying into ITA. That's the successor of Alitalia. We've got Tap Portugal, Air Portugal up for sale. So there's a very eventful time uh, in Europe um, on the consolidation front. Uh, now, I was actually spent this morning going through some old Air France KLM transcripts for the past few quarters. And it is crystal clear that they want to consolidate. They want to be part of consolidation. Uh, there's a couple, couple of quotes that I found that were pretty striking. Um, you know, one is Ben Smith, their CEO, saying that, you know, we don't want to get marginalized in Europe. And, uh, you know, they, by the way, they also were uh, very interested in Air Europa. Um, they, they did some work said, with them, right? They they worked with Air Europa for a few years. I mean, not not recently, but yep, in, uh, yep. in the past decade, yeah. Th- that's true. And then ultimately they said, quote, we couldn't find a deal satisfactory to us. Um, we did take a close look, quote unquote, at ITA as well. Um, and then with TAP Air Portugal, quote unquote, we do find it a very interesting opportunity. So Air France is going to be, uh, you know, clearly heavily involved. And then to uh, somewhat, you know, Somewhat surprising. I don't know if it's a, a total shock, but they announced last week that, as you mentioned, Ned, they're going to be uh, buying twenty percent of SAS, the Scandinavian Airlines. This week, it just just happened Tuesday. What did I say last week? Yes, yes. This week, yes, uh, not Tuesday. So they are uh, going to get involved there. Now, interestingly, they said that after two years, they have. Uh, some sort of option. It wasn't clear about exactly how this, uh, you know, how this will all sort out. But after two years, they'll have some sort of opportunity to become the controlling shareholder in SAS. So as a 20% shareholder, there's obviously limited flexibility on, you know, what routes they go. That'll ultimately, SAS is still going to be in charge of, 
Yeah, and, and I should say, I listened to CEO Anko Vanderwerf and, and uh, Carson, Chairman Carson Dilling of SAS's press conference on Tuesday, and, and they were very clear that even under under this current pact, which which will involve them switching alliances, SAS will be in charge. There was a number of questions over, for example, whether their Eurobonus loyalty program would merge with Flying Blue, which is Air France KLM's program. And and Vanderwerf emphasized that, no, this is a 20% stake. They will co cooperate commercially and partner, but they will not. This isn't a merger, at least not yet. Right. I liked his joke, too. He said, if we do wind up merging the frequent flyer programs, at least it's flying blue, which is our colors, not flying red. It'd be more, it'd be more complicated. That was a good one. <laughs> so jokes aside, um, this is a very uh, serious move towards consolidating uh, Europe's still very fragmented airline industry. Uh, now, you know, not having control. So it's interesting if you compare a consolidation in Europe and, and the U.S. is very different. You know, if you go back to, and I'm just citing one example here, but when United and Continental merged, they were able to ultimately close or at least significantly downsize the Cleveland hub, for example. And Delta did the same thing in Cincinnati after the Northwest Memphis. merger. And you can go on, uh, you know, American, the U.S. Airways used to have a Pittsburgh hub. That's a, you, so ideally, you probably would, if you were to think about a combination between Air France, KLM, and SAS, a hub like Stockholm is probably, probably shouldn't be a hub. And ideally, you would want to dehub that over time now that gets difficult to do politically and then i was also... going to say that is a very political political question um during the right. same press conference that we both listened to the future location of ss's headquarters came up several times uh, it's currently in stockholm but uh, as reporters local reporters pointed out sweden is not participating in the equity package denmark is so a uh, lot of questions over whether they'd move the hub to to Copenhagen. And, you know, then there were even questions about the hub itself. And Chairman Dilling made an interesting point about, you know, they or no, sorry, it was Vanderworth who made an interesting point that, you know, the most logical hub is the most southern point on our network, and that is Copenhagen. And yeah. he said they absolutely do focus on a Stockholm, but he mentioned local traffic and much less talk about connections. So. Yeah, like you said, uh, Stockholm's, or, you know, I wonder, are Stockholm's days as a hub for SAS numbered? Yeah, and Oslo for that matter. And uh, yeah, we'll see how it all transpires now. Two years from now, Air France takes total control and they can get over the political obstacles. And, you know, maybe you do see those secondary hubs at SAS slim down. Um, but that is a big difference uh, between Europe and the U.S. In the U.S., you don't, you have some political uh, you know, challenges. There's going to be local politicians in Cleveland that are going to scream and yell and whatever, but it does get more difficult when it's a sovereign country that's, uh, you know, that's involved. So there's that. Now, Absolutely. you know, what, Jay, yeah. one more thought on consolidation. I just want to point out that if Air France KLM does buy SAS, it only gives them a 9% share of the intra-European market. 9%. Think about it. Consolidation in the U.S. got United, American, and Delta up to about 20% each, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But Air France KLM would still only have 9%. It's still quite a fragmented market. It's still very much fragmented because part of the reason the LCCs are so big. I mean, your Ryanair is, is so is, is the largest airline in Europe, if you look Absolutely. at just the share hall markets. Now, if you look at if you, if you the big difference between Europe and the another big difference between the U.S. and Europe is that 
you know, the domestic market in the United States is so giant. And there are actually long haul domestic markets that make a lot of money. Think of, you know, Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, New York, even, you know, New York to Florida is just this massive market. And, you know, that's a pretty, pretty long market. Whereas Europe geographically is just very small. And all that short haul stuff is, you know, they're one and two hour flights where, you know, Air France doesn't make any money. None, none of the legacy carriers can make any money on that. I mean, this is SAS's big problem, right? Is that they don't have enough long states, long, long flights uh, where they're competitive. They're 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 forced to compete on all of these short stage flights against Ryanair, against EasyJet, against Wizz Air. So the name of the game here is long haul, and in that market. There is, it is more consolidated. I mean, still somewhat fragmented. You know, you've got all these, you know, carriers like TUI with the vacation. You got Virgin Atlantic, which is part of the Air France ecosystem now, but uh, it's it is somewhat somewhat fragmented still, but not quite as fragmented as the short haul market. And what SAS does is for Air France. I mean, they're certainly not interested in flights between Copenhagen and Berlin or whatever. I mean, that's that's not why Air France is buying this. Right. buying into this what they're interested is basically pumping all that scandinavian business traffic which is a rather you know that that's that's serious market right there it's serious yeah. business serious revenue they want to pump that in to paris and amsterdam rather than you know currently a lot of that goes because they're in star team a lot of that goes to frankfurt you know love tons of subs so now if they can shift that to their own hubs they can put all of those Scandinavian business travelers on their flights to the Americas or their flights to Africa or their flights to wherever. Uh, so the logic is, you know, is is, is pretty clear there. And yeah. that seems to make asterisk a lot of sense. Asterisk there, Jay, asterisk. I mean, it does make a lot of sense. But we also remember it looks like those flight cuts at Schiphol are going to come down starting next summer, which means KLM is going to have limited room to grow. This also, this deal would also give the group another hub like you know we talked about Copenhagen being being probably the best hub in SAS's network that could be very important to Air France KLM's future growth if they basically can't add flights in Amsterdam anymore a hundred percent I think Air France KLM is nervous about that what's happening in, in Amsterdam so this does uh, if you recall um IAG the which owns British Airways when they bought Air Lingus one of their justifications for that deal was that we couldn't grow in London Heathrow. In fact, even when, if you go back to whenever it was 2011, 2012, I have my dates a little bit wrong, but when Iberia and British Airways themselves merged, one of the reasons why British Airways did it was because Madrid had this airport with so much growth opportunity. Uh, the infrastructure was there, whatnot, but Heathrow didn't have that. And this is somewhat the same. I mean, some differences, but I think Air France KLM is 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 definitely worried um, about what you're talking about. How Amsterdam, there's not going to be any growth there. So you know, much of the Scandinavian long haul connecting business traffic that we're referring to, you're right. It may wind most most of it may wind up going through Paris uh, rather than Amsterdam. But either way, Air France wants to collect on that, and you know, it should be good revenue for them now it's still a big, it's still a big win for them especially considering you know SES was in star and 
And while they weren't necessarily, you know, Lufthansa didn't have a stake in them, they were long considered, you know, sort of in Lufthansa's backyard. And so yep. it was a big, uh, big strategic pivot for SAS, even as a standalone company to, to align with Air France, KLM and, and SkyTeam. Now, conversely, Lufthansa pulled, I'm just going to call it Alitalia just for <laughs> but ITA out of the uh, yeah old habits, uh, never die. But uh, they, they pulled uh quote unquote Alitalia out of Air France KLM's orbit and brought them into sort of the star they're I guess not technically part of Star Team yet, but uh Star Alliance yet, but did I just say Star Team? Like, <laughs> We're forging merge, new, new global yeah. alliances as we speak. The <laughs> if, Star if Team two, Alliance. If, if those two alliances ever merge, there's a good name. You could uh, you heard it from me first. No, but seriously they pulled you know Alitalia into that orbit. Uh and that was a situation interesting. You know, Air France KLM actually did once own a quarter of the old Alitalia. And strategically, it was uh, very fruitful in the sense that all of that northern Italian corporate traffic, very lucrative stuff, was getting funneled through Paris and Amsterdam. Uh, very helpful. But in the end, Alitalia just lost so much money flying all those short haul routes and, you know, they couldn't decide whether Rome or Milan is going to be their, their hub. And they were overstaffed for so many reasons. They were losing so much money that in the end, Air, Air France, came, it just, it wasn't worth it. It was just the, the, all the costs outweighed the benefits. Right. And now remember that's... Air France KLM was, was a partner to uh, Sertare's failed bid to take ITA private last year that um, they just weren't that, but, at the time, Air France KLM was not able to provide any equity because of these conditions to the French state aid that they received. So that bid ultimately failed, allowing Lufthansa to, to succeed in their, their bid for ITA. Exactly. So Air France, they, they would have liked to get back involved with Alitalia's successor because of that Italian business traffic that I mentioned. They would have loved to have done that on, you know, on their own terms where Alitalia was the, or ITA was restructured and you know, wouldn't have all those losses of the past. So now what they're hoping is that they were able to negotiate a similar deal with SAS or a deal with SAS where they can get the benefits of the connecting traffic, the connecting feed without having SAS losses. And let's be clear, it is not a very profitable airline um, without having that outweigh those benefits. And that's, you know, that'll be the, the big challenge. And our friend Skylam says, you know, our goal going forward is that we want to have a 7 to 8% operating margin every year, which is not, you know, that's not super ambitious. But they um, they said we're not doing any deal that puts that goal in jeopardy. So if we think, you know, we're not, we're not just going to grab some, you know, heavily loss making airline. Now, they, now j just, just for the connecting feed. They they obviously feel in this case that SAS has done sufficient restructuring, which is something that you can do uh, to to a great degree when you're in bankruptcy. It's it's easier right. to cut costs. So they obviously feel that uh, SAS is in a better position to make decent money, or at least not lose a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So they're going for it. <laughs> And uh, we'll see if they wind up taking full control two years from now. Yeah, that's good. Everyone's going to be watching. 
So it's it's an interesting story. And and the one one final thought on this before we take a break is is just, you know, where does this leave Tap Air Portugal? You know, Air France KLM has expressed a lot of interest in them, you know, as has IAG and Lufthansa, but with each major group now involved in a consolidation deal, I'm just curious how much capacity each one will have to 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 bid on tap. And you know, it's uh, maybe they have the capacity and I'm just my concerns are completely unfounded. But <laughs> two mergers at a time or two acquisitions at a time is, is a lot for an airline. But, you know, we shall see yeah. as, as bids come in. Right. And the fact that they're only buying 20 percent SAS, I think that limits the capital intensity uh, of, of this. I, I, I think Air France probably will have it in. I mean, you know, perhaps they can do a partner uh, again to uh, to, uh, to, bu- to buy something like Tap Air Portugal, and they are that Tap. By the way, is uh, that is the next the next big battleground? Because if you look at, I, I was I was looking at uh, Sirium Do numbers this morning on uh, all the airlines in Europe. If you look at, so Europe has the five big, we'll call them low cost carriers: Ryanair, EasyJet, Wizz Air, Jet Two, which is bigger than some might think, and Norwegian. So let's exclude those for for a moment. The only independent airlines really left in Europe of any kind of significant size. So you have Tap Air Portugal's number one, which is why there's so much in focus now. Finnair is actually number two. Now, I always thought that Finnair might have made a good uh, acquisition target for an IAG, but, uh, you know, give them more Asia exposure. Now with all this stuff that's happening in Russia, to, you know, Russia overflight, Finnair depends on Russian airspace, a lot of they did. So that makes Finnair kind of less attractive. They're probably off the radar screen for now. Then you start getting into, you know, Volatea and TUI is kind of its own thing. Lot Polish, does anybody really, you know, want that? Uh, possibly. Lot Polish kind of wild card. You got to think about it because that's Poland's actually a pretty big market. They're planning on building a new airport in Warsaw and, you know, who knows. But I, I don't think that's anything, we're, you know, we'll hear about any real, real soon. Uh but then yeah, after that, you start getting to like really small airlines, you know, Air Baltics of the world. There, there's Iceland Air. It's interesting. Um, you know, Flybees and play, you know, very, very small players. So uh, we're kind of getting to the point where Europe is, uh, you know, we may be towards the end of the consolidation game. We may be. We shall find mm-hmm. out soon. With that, we will take a quick break and we're going to come back and talk about the other big news story of the week so far. And we're back. Jay, so on Tuesday as well, United Airlines unveiled yet another triple digit order for 110 Airbus and Boeing aircraft. Now, this is these were just these were options and purchase rights that the airline exercised, but it comes after they've already had ordered more than 300 planes in 2021 and 2022. So that's a lot of planes on order. Thoughts? Yeah, that is. Uh, I agree. That's a lot of planes on order. They're really getting aggressive here. They they clearly feel that their route network is uh, operating under its full potential. That there's uh, a lot of lot more they can squeeze out of that. Now, one one big strategy they have, aside from just mere growth, is you know overall growth is 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 growth in actual shell size, where they want to go to you know bigger average aircraft, and that you can see the logic there. They bigger aircraft tend to have 
lower unit cost and you make better use of scarce slots at an airport like Newark, for example, which you really can't grow too much in terms of flight frequencies. So they actually, in fact, in the press release they issued uh, relating to the new aircraft order, they said that in 2019, United averaged 104 seats per North American flight departure. Um, and they noticed they noted that that's among the lowest in the industry. But by 2027, United expects that number to jump more than 40% to over 145 seats. Now, some of the math there just figures that because they're they're retiring a lot of regional aircraft, really small, you know, 50-seaters and stuff, 70-seaters. So that's one reason why the average aircraft size is going up. But they're also moving to, you know, just these A321neos, which are very large. It's the largest. 200 seats in a, yeah. in a standard domestic configuration. Yep, yep. And then, you know, even, even on the MAX side, those are pretty large. So, uh, so there you go. United is, uh, they believe they can, they're, they, they're, they believe they've got a lot of growth there, but uh, they're, that's a lot of seats that they're going to have to fill over, over time. It is, you know, and I, you know, the upgaging uh, concept has been around for years I mean, the U.S. I and mean, we saw Delta really begin to upgage 2013, 2014. I remember when they did their deal to, uh, retire 50 seaters and buy 717s. So this is not a new strategy for United and and it makes a lot of sense not questioning the upgaging strategy. What is questionable is just how many planes they have in order. So I looked at United's total sort of capital aircraft commitments at the end of June. This is the latest numbers they have. And they had 49.3 billion in capital commitments. That is massive. Comparison Delta only had 18.5 billion and American 12.7 billion. Yeah. Now, the asterisk there is both Delta and American, as you pointed out, have have already upgaged more of their fleet. They're further along with their fleet renewal, so they don't need to buy as many planes. But United has a lot of commitments, and that really makes you makes you wonder, you know, how they're going to pay for all these planes that are going to come over the next decade. And... At a time of rising interest rates, yeah, that's it, it does it it does definitely elicit some question marks about that. Right. And yeah, analysts have, have asked United about this. And I look back at several recent, uh, you know, transcripts and, you know, United has basically said they think they're going to have the free cash flow to, to cover their capital expenditures and which coupled with debt, you know, enhanced, uh, secured enhanced equipment trust certificate or WTC notes can pay for a lot of those. So United is confident, but we really, you know, like you said, interest rates are up, debt's more costly. You know, the day of getting sub 3% on a WCA tranche is probably gone for the foreseeable future. Never say it won't come back, but yeah. Um, and then there's just the question of, if, do U.S. airlines have too many planes on order? We're already seeing weakness in the low end of the domestic market, as we've seen Breeze, Frontier, JetBlue all point out there's softness there. And, uh, you know, international is is rebounding this year and expected to next year, but it's not going to continue to surge. It's going to eventually stabilize. So you really have to wonder if, if you know, having, uh, sorry, I did the number, 767 planes on firm order based on end of June numbers uh, is Which, which too I think many. is more than any other airline in the world, except for maybe the India, you know, I don't know, Indigo and Air India. Maybe. Oh, yeah. I think Indigo yeah. has some huge number of Airbus A320 Neos on order, but um, you you really have to wonder if that's you. Sorry, Indigo is in a in, is in an emerging market. India is a growing market. The U.S. is a mature market, and its rate of growth, pandemic aside, is going to ultimately come down to roughly economic growth. So two three percent a year. 
that's a ton of aircraft. Even if you're replacing, and most of those are for replacement, that's still a ton of new aircraft coming to United over the next decade. And yeah, just yeah, no, they're, raises they're questions. It does raise questions. They're replacing small aircraft with bigger aircraft. So yeah, that's um, I, I think there there are question marks there. I mean, yes, I see see the logic that uh, you know they can ex- get more out of a hub like Newark if they're flying you know bigger planes, smaller planes. I see the logic in uh, you know buying these uh, A321 Neos, which have great economics. Yeah. Uh, and you're going I, from seven five sevens with about 175 seats to A321 Neos with 200 seats. So clear you know gauge increase, gauge gains. Yeah, and you might not have to fill every single one of those seats. That you know, it, it to to a certain degree, you're getting free seats because the economics are so good. Yes, you know, if you yes. have 100% load factor on a 757 might you know be just as profitable as a, a 90% load factor. I'm just making that number up, but 90% load factor on A321 Neo. So you know, you, you might be willing to stomach some empty seats. So you know, keep that in mind. But but still, right. it's a lot of a lot of empty seats to fill. Yeah, you know, a lot of, a lot of new seats to fill. Um, one other point I just wanted to make on the international side, United's really bullish on international, clearly, with these 787 orders. Now, it is kind of the opposite in terms of the gauging situation, because um, if you think about, you know, in the past, United flew larger triple sevens. They're totally not interested in the, you know, and they haven't bought the maybe one day, but I don't think they really want to buy that new triple seven, the nines that are uh, the eights and nines that the Boeing is now. Uh, trying to build, I almost said build, but uh, trying to build. But they are buying a lot of 787s, which is a smaller aircraft. So in a sense, there's there's somewhat, you might say, downgaging on the international front. Uh, now, they believe that a lot during COVID, a lot of foreign adversaries, and if you think about, I don't know, the Norwegians of the world, or even, you know, even some of the European, the bigger European players, uh, players in Asia, for example, a lot of them either, you know, cut flights, some of them went bankrupt, some of them went out of business, some of them moved to much smaller aircraft, you know, 380s, a lot of them were parked. So they just think that the international opportunities, there's still growth there. And they're, they have a good opportunity to seize a lot of that because their foreign, foreign rivals won't be able to uh, on the capacity front. And uh, yeah, another, you know, that's an Another question yeah. about whether or not they're right. Um, yeah, but it is. Yeah, it's an ambitious strategy, um, and it's you know cool. you see the logic, but there's risk. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I everything you said. I want to point out that if they end up taking, um, so the order was for seven eight seven nines. As we well know, you know the actual uh, variant that United takes is probably going to change between now and twenty twenty eight. Um, but I want to point out the seven eight seven dash ten doesn't quite have the range as the nine but it's still a a very you know very efficient plane it seats about as many passengers as united currently puts on their triple seven two hundreds and the triple seven two hundreds are going to be getting up there for replacement later this decade i mean some of them are already very old so you got to think that they they could be eyeing some some triple seven replacement there with with some seven eight seven dash ten so yeah yeah good yeah good good point about comparing the uh yeah the capacity of those two aircraft and remember that united never they were very late in getting the 300 ers if i remember they don't have too many of them is that correct Ned? I they think have they... 20 of them and they're all really young the first one arrived in 2016 yeah. so, so there you go yeah. they were not yeah they were not one of these airlines like you know Air France, which has a ton of 300 yards. They were a lot of their, the majority of United's 777s are very old. 
So these are a lot of these 787s that they're ordering are going to be replacement aircraft. So again, that mitigates the risk somewhat. They're not, you know, don't think of all of these 800 planes or however many they're ordering in total. Don't think of these as all growth. But there's definitely some growth built in. You know, yes. Pretty, pretty not, not a negligible amount of growth. Absolutely. Well, Jay, with that, we're going to say goodbye for this week. Listeners, you can reach myself at er at skiff.com. You can reach Jay at js at skiff.com. Jay, always a pleasure. Yep, that's uh, it was always a pleasure and um, always uh, in another exciting week in the airline industry. I'm sure we'll have a lot more excitement as uh, the quarterly earnings season begins um, in just another couple next week, right? The, the 12th, I think Delta goes on October 12th. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week.